compared to the Old Testament, Jesus enlarges what is forgivable. I second that uh, we should keep singing the Psalms, uh, that it's um, a wonderful practice that's commanded in Scripture in Ephesians and in Colossians. It says we're supposed to sing Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And at the head of the list in both of those books is our, our Psalms. So it often saddens me when we don't sing the, the Psalms as much as Scripture calls us to. So about a year or two ago, I was I was visiting a church and and uh, speaking there, and I I spent some time with a woman who had thought she had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. This was after the meeting, and you know we were having a fellowship time, and she she was very concerned that she had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and of course. Why do you think that? You, you want to have a conversation about that. And so in, in her case, she felt she had blasphemed the Holy Spirit because of something that had happened several years prior and something specific that she said in reference to the Holy Spirit. And, and she, was, she was convinced. She was convinced that she had crossed this line that meant no forgiveness for her. And it was, it was very difficult to persuade her of a contrary position. And I'm sure a lot of us have been asked the question or asked ourselves, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? How do we confidently know what it is? Have we committed it? Has this person committed it? Somebody that we're talking to? It's a big question. I, not too long ago, also recently heard a sermon where someone was, uh, the preacher was, accusing the charismatic world of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And, you know, there's often a lot of extreme and unruly things that happen in charismatic meetings. And he felt that that was blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But if you think about it, he was, he, he was actually doing something that is a, is a switch from what we're going to read about. He was saying that they were labeling something of God that was of Satan and what we're going to see is what the Pharisees call blasphemy in the Holy Spirit is, is the flip side of that, where something is of God and they're labeling it satanic, right? It's actually the, the mirror image there. <clears throat> I, have, I have heard there are many, many variants on this topic of what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, ranging from swearing and cursing God, telling dirty jokes, not believing the gospel. Um, I've heard abortion. I mean, I've heard all kinds of things that people have called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what I want us to do today is to look at scripture on this and get a confident sense of what this is and then learn what its relevance is for our lives. So we're going to actually be looking at a couple passages of scripture, but the main one is Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. So Matthew chapter 12 we're going to go from 22 to verse 33. But as I said, we're going to, or actually 32, um, yeah, 22 to 32. And we're going to be looking at a couple of passages here to unpack what all this means. 
So Matthew 12, 22 to 32. This is the New King James. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. All right, let's pray. Father, as we look at this this very important topic that has vexed many, many people for many centuries, I pray we would just attend carefully to the words of Scripture, to the context, to what Jesus is saying, that we can understand what it meant in that context and what it means for us today. Father, I I pray that you would help us to be good students of your word who do not need to have weak consciences, but rather consciences trained by your scriptures that are a sure guide in a world that is groping and searching for the truth. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, in fact, this is actually a very rich passage that has so much in it, and it's easy to miss what all is in it because we approach this often with this one-track mind of like, what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And we'll get there, but I do want to make sure that we cover at least a little bit else of what's in here. And I first want to walk through the logic of this passage. So, it's, it's pretty straightforward. So, Jesus does this amazing miracle. He heals this man who's both blind and mute. And the multitudes to see this this double miracle, really triple miracle, because he's demon-possessed as well. So he's healed of his demon possession, his blindness, and his muteness, his inability to speak. So to see three miracles all in one event would have been amazing. And so the multitudes are amazed and say, could this be the one? Could this be the son of David? And of course, the son of David is a reference to 2 Samuel 7, that that famous uh, covenant promise that was given to David that his son would would have an eternal throne. And and so on the one hand, we see the crowds that are just so amazed and and, uh, just... Uh, aghast at, at, in a good way at what they have seen. The Pharisees have 
the opposite reaction. They can't deny the miracle, but rather than attribute this to messianic activity, they say, okay, we know what's going on here. This, this fellow is doing this by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. We, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this name Beelzebub. There are, there's a whole lot of speculation about what Beelzebub means. Um, and it's, in Greek, it's actually Beelzebul, so there's a, a, a lambda at the end, not a, not a beta. But it, Lord of the Flies is one description uh, that has been uh, one etymological understanding of this. Lord of Dung, there's all these, these concepts. I don't think it actually matters that much for interpreting the passage. Uh, there's, there may be a Hebrew reference here. Again, we won't get into that. Whoever this Beelzebub character is, it's, it's obvious that he's a bad character and he's the ruler of the demons. So it could be a way of describing Satan. Uh, it's very, very probable. As I said, we're not going to spend time on this. So crowds are amazed. Pharisees are, are convinced this is demonic. And Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, it says in verse 25, says, all right, everyone, I want to just do a basic lesson here on if this is sensible in any way. And so what he says is, if you're right, then Satan is attacking Satan, that Satan is undermining his own house, which doesn't make any sense. And that famous line, every kingdom divided itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. We've, we've heard this a lot, this notion that a divided house can't stand. And so simple logic, he says, think about what you're saying. This does not make sense. And then, and then in 27, it might be a little bit confusing here, but I want to explain this, where he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? So sons is an idiom for saying, how do your people cast them out? So we know that there were Jewish exorcists at the time who were similarly trying to do or doing demon uh, exorcisms. We see them actually in the book of Acts. You remember the sons of Sceva. There's a group of people that are these, these Jewish folks that are going out trying to cast out demons. And, and apparently the Pharisees gave them credibility. And he says, okay, well, if I'm casting out demons by Beelzebub, then how are your people casting out demons? And he says, if you're impugning me, if you're saying bad things about me, aren't you also impugning your own people? And when it says, therefore, they shall be your judges, these these sons of yours, these, these people who are casting out demons from the mainstream Jewish perspective, they're going to judge you Pharisees. And so he's sort of saying that your house is divided if you're, if you're going to be making this kind of accusation. But then he says, if I'm casting out demons by the spirit of God, then surely the, the, the kingdom of God has come upon you. That if I have the spirit of God, if this is truly divine, then my declaration of the kingdom is valid. And then he says something fascinating in 29. He says, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his, and then he will plunder his house. Okay, so this might be confusing. Hopefully many of you already are familiar with this passage, but basically what he's saying is in order to do the things that I'm doing, then I, it is necessary that, that, you are, are, are going to have to bind and somehow incapacitate the ruler of the house. Okay, so if you walk into the White House 
and start stealing things, it's not gonna last very long because you're gonna be arrested and captured. The only way you can possibly do that is if you incapacitate whoever's in charge there and send that house into disarray and now you can actually plunder it. And so here in this analogy, and it's, it's a little bit odd to our sensibilities, but the devil is the strong man and Jesus has already bound the strong man, uh, at least to some degree. And you might think, okay, well, when does that happen? When has Jesus already bound the strong man? The, the best candidate for what he's referring to here is the temptations that we saw already in Matthew 4, where Jesus defeated the devil. Of course, that's an early victory, and the ultimate victory is going to come at the cross, where the head of the devil will be crushed. But I picture somebody who is, they're tied up, you know, their, their hands are tied up, and maybe their feet are bound, and, and Jesus has the ability now to plunder the house of Satan. It's a kind of an exciting image here. It fits what we know also from the previous chapter where Jesus says the kingdom is advancing forcefully or violently, some translations say. And Jesus uses this, this kind of language to describe what's happening now, that he has subdued this strong man. And again, you picture the devil who's, who's bound up, who's, who's got these cords tied around him. And... And so he says, the fact that I can do these things means that I have done something still greater before this, which is binding the strong man, binding the devil. And then in verse 30, he says something that is, is really a call to, to action here. So actually, my, my first point, I have four points in this sermon here, is that kingdom advance forces a decision. Kingdom advance forces a decision. So he says in verse 30, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So he completely destroys any notion of neutrality. You know, we, we live in a, in a world today where a lot of people believe in the myth of neutrality. Oh yeah, I, I like Jesus, I like Christianity, I like Buddhism, I like Islam, I see some validity in, in all these different faiths, and I just, I want to I get the, the best of all these worlds and, and bring it all together. And Jesus here teaches us in this little line that if you're not decisively on his side, you are against him. And if you're not gathering, he's using harvest image here, then you're scattering. And that might seem harsh to our ears. That might seem like, whoa, Jesus, is that unnecessarily polar? But it is simply the way of of the kingdom, that if you are not actively on Jesus' side, if you're not gathering the harvest, if you're not bringing in with him, then you are scattering. Even by example, you know, a lot of people say, well, what if I'm not out there evangelizing? What if I'm not out there doing all these things? Well, <laughs> your example alone is a negative example when Jesus has made a call for us to follow him and become fishers of people or fishers of men. So strong, strong call in that. Um, and then he, he transitions from this, this description of what he has done in the spiritual realm to this, now the statement about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So I'm gonna read it again and then we're gonna un try to unpack this. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. 
Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, so what is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is Jesus talking about here? Uh, I, I think it's, it's um, the, the, the best way to first understand any passage is to first look at the context, right? So many of us have done inductive Bible studies and know how important the context is to really understand the meaning here. And in fact, this does not come out of nowhere. So here's the second passage I want us to look at here. We're gonna look at three passages in total. The, the second passage I want us to look at is in Matthew 9. So just flip back in your Bibles just a little ways to Matthew 9. And I'm going to read verses 27 to 32. Matthew 9, 27 to 32. It says, When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind man came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them saying, see that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. And as they went out, went out of the house, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisee said, He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Okay, so hopefully we haven't forgotten this passage, but it's very similar, isn't it, to what we just read. Before, there were two individuals, actually three individuals, there were two blind people, who were healed first. They go into this house, they're healed. And then as they leave, they bring a mute person to Jesus who's demon possessed. Jesus heals this demon possessed man. The multitudes are amazed. And the Pharisees say in 34, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Sounds very similar, right? Sounds very similar to what we just read. Okay, so why, why do, is this so important? Is that they have seen now a whole array of miracles that have demonstrated the power of, of the Christ, of, of the Messiah, of Jesus. And miracle after miracle after miracle has been shown to them. And even in this very chapter, remember, just like right up at the top, we won't go back and read this, but in the beginning, there was the, the story of the man with the shriveled hand in the synagogue. And we, we looked at that two or three messages ago. And they're having this debate about the Sabbath. Jesus heals this man who has the shriveled hand. And do they say like, whoa, you, your argument has to be right on the Sabbath because you just demonstrated the power of God in healing a man who has the shriveled hand. No, what do they do? They go out and plot to kill Jesus in response to that. Okay, so contextually here, we have a group of people that have seen a whole array of miracles. And what we have here is in some ways surpassing the Matthew 9 miracle because in one person we see the blindness and the muteness and the demon possession all in one person. Okay, so, so that's, that's some of the, the, the context of this here. 
that I want us to remember. Uh, as I said, the, the crowd, they're blown away. Whoa, what's going on? But the Pharisees are, are positing that this is the work of Satan. Okay, so my second point here is that, and I'm going to unpack this, but it is that the blasphemy of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit is stubbornly disputing the indisputable. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is stubbornly disputing the indisputable. Okay, so that's going to be a working definition that, that I'm going to be using here. Uh, I take that phrase, disputing the indisputable, from a writer named Burkhauer, who I think captures it really well, that they are not speaking here out of ignorance. They are not speaking out of like, okay, wait a minute, who is this person? This is a repetitive exposure that they have had to him. And they are digging their heels in and are stubbornly disputing the indisputable. Okay, so let's talk about this. And the first thing I think we have to say is we should search our own experiences, search our own hearts. There have been times, I have seen this, you have seen this, where intelligent people, they are determined to see things in a certain way and their brains start orienting the world in such a way where something that is like plainly obvious right in front of them just can't be, can't be um, uh, denied, gets just spun in a whole different way. There's a story, I'm sure many of you have heard this, I think somebody made it up, but I've heard it a lot of times, of this man who was convinced that he was dead. Some of you have heard the story. There was this story of a man who was convinced he was dead. And obviously a crazy thing, He's, he, belie- he tells his family, I'm dead, this is terrible, I'm dead. And they're like, you're not dead, come on, you're talking, you're breathing, you're not dead. It's like, yes I am, yes I am, I'm dead, I'm dead. I'm like, okay, would you at least go to the doctor and listen to a person who can speak with some authority here and tell you that you're not dead? So he goes to the doctor, same conversation, doctor, my problem is I'm dead. Doctor's like, you're not dead. You're, you're talking to me, you're breathing, you're not dead. Yes, I am. On and on it goes. And, and so the doctor says, well, wait a minute. Would you at least agree to the statement that, that um, dead people don't bleed? He's like, yeah, that's true. Um, only living people bleed. He says, okay, if you agree with that statement, I'm going to go and I'm going to get a lance and I'm going to prick your finger and you're going to see it bleed. You know, I want you to see for yourself. So he gets the lance, he pricks the guy's finger, blood comes out. The guy's like, whoa, I can't believe it. Dead people really do bleed, (laughs) right? And and so, you know, you you hear this, and you've seen this, okay, that's admittedly kind of an extreme funny example, but but there's intelligent people out there who who believe crazy things and simply can't be talked off of that. Uh, Today's September 11th, 2022. And so this is a, an ominous day in the history of America. I still remember so well, September 11, 2001. And I have heard every manner of theory about what happened on September 11th. And there was a guy once who tried to convince me about one of the many, many theories of what happened on September 11th. He's like, you gotta listen to this video. Professing, professing Christian guy, came into this this very room that we're in right now. You got to listen to this video on YouTube. And all right, I'll watch this video. I could just send it to me the link. And so I watched this link 
And it's run by a psychic. And I'm, so I'm like, why are you sending me videos run by a psychic? He's a professing Christian. Like, just listen to it. Just listen to it. There's truth in this. And, um, and so the psychic is interviewing an airline pilot stewardess, or sorry, an airline stewardess, not a pilot, an airline stewardess who is speculating, no evidence for this whatsoever, but speculates that you know, one of the planes for September 11th flew from Logan Airport, just right here in Boston, and she just asserts this theory that this plane lands at Hanscom Air, uh, Air Force Base, which is very close to us in Lexington here, and then the military rushes onto the plane, they gas all the members of all the uh, passengers there, and then a robot flies the plane into, into uh, one of the Twin Towers. So I listened to this thing, and I'm just like, this is crazy. This is a psychic interviewing a stewardess who doesn't know what she's talking about, and she's just making up all this stuff at every turn. How in the world am I supposed to believe this? You gotta believe it, it's true, it's true, it's true. Why? It's just true. I'm like, give me some evidence. And of course it goes on and on, and there's no progress made. None, zero, and I wish I could say that I had any effect in deterring that belief, but I did not. Uh, all kinds of ideas that are out there that people have made. There's, there's one person who has, has noted that malice or hatred is one of the most powerful forces to reshape beliefs. Okay, so he says it this way, malice makes men blind, reasonless, and absurd. Right? You, can, you can reason out things that don't make any sense, no sense. Like I, I, I continually grieve what's going on now where our, our brother is in Ukraine right now. And you just think, does this make any sense? Like what human being can, can tolerate the tens of thousands of people who have died in this war? Uh, no sense. It just doesn't make any sense. But yet on and on it goes. What, what is happening here with the Pharisees is they are disputing the indisputable. They have seen miracle after miracle after miracle. There is no other valid explanation other than this is indeed from God, but they simply don't want to believe that. So if this is the case that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is disputing the indisputable, how does it even make sense that that what Jesus says at the end of this passage here, now back in Matthew, Matthew 12, where he says, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. So I think it actually makes a lot of sense. I think it makes so much sense. And the reason that it makes so much sense that there is a category of sin that there's a point of no return from is that all of us, every single one of us requires the influence of the Holy Spirit to, to believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is called the helper, right? And it says in, in John 15, verse 26, Jesus talks about the job of the Holy Spirit and his job is to testify about Jesus. So you have this function of the Holy Spirit, which is to be a helper, which is to point people to Jesus. And if one is so stubborn, so obstinate, just so, so much digging in their heels, eventually we know that the Holy Spirit can be grieved to such a point that the Holy Spirit withdraws. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing or a force. And without the influence of the Holy Spirit, we are hopeless at arriving at, at the truth and coming to know Jesus. Okay, so 
it might help us, I think it helps us to think about positive examples of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where we can just see it like very, very clearly. And I think one of the best examples of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is actually in the Old Testament. It's the example of Pharaoh, where Pharaoh, okay, did Pharaoh dispute the indisputable? He did, right? Moses did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, right? Just undeniable. Even that final miracle where the, you know, all the firstborn boys die, I mean, like, how much more do you need to see? And here Pharaoh is just rejecting that. And it uses the language of hardness of heart, so slightly different vocabulary, but the same concept is there. That eventually, and one of the, one of the best ways to think about hardness of heart is that, is that we're all like, like a piece of, of pottery, right? The Bible likens us to a piece of pottery. And picture a piece of pottery, and we all know that in order for a, a pot uh, to, to be molded, it has to be damp or wet, right? If it's, if it's just dry, it doesn't, it's not moldable. And so, so if, if, if we're damp and moldable, okay, we can be shaped, we can be molded into the kind of vessel God wants us to be. But if that, uh, that pot is hardened, if it's, if it's lacking that water, that moisture, then it is, it is locked into a position, right? So picture again, like a, a pot that's just like, gets all dry and it's just misshapen. Well, guess what? That pot is gonna be stuck like that. It's, it's a hardened pot, it's a hardened vessel. And that's the picture I have of Pharaoh, uh, that eventually he said no so many times to the water of the Holy Spirit, to that agent of softening that we're supposed to have that eventually he just locked into this position. and. There's no return once you're at that, at that point. Uh, so this is why we have to be very careful to cherish the influences of God, to cherish when we, when we uh, have the revelation through scripture, through the Holy Spirit of, of what God is calling us to do. This is described at not an individual level, but at a societal level in Romans 1. In Romans 1, it uses slightly different vocabulary, that of being handed over to one's own desires. I'm not gonna go through that whole passage, I think many of us know that, but it's the same basic concept there where there comes a point of no return and finally God says, all right, you want that, you can have that and you become hardened in that position. Okay, so this is I think the most straightforward, clear, simple way to read what's happening here with the, the Pharisees. I don't think this requires a lot of gymnastics or difficulty to get to this position, that they are simply, <clears throat> they've seen re the revelation of God again and again, they've seen his miraculous power and they just keep resisting that. Okay, so that's my second point. My first point was that kingdom advance forces a decision. My second point was that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is stubbornly disputing the indisputable. My third point is that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is connected to other warning passages in the New Testament. Okay, and we're gonna look at these in a moment. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is connected to other warning passages in the New Testament. <clears throat> so there are a handful of very famous warning passages. There's a lot of warning passages, but there's a handful of very famous warning passages. One of them is Hebrews 6. Um, one of them is Hebrews 10. And then 1 John 5, 16. In the interest of time, I only want us to look at one of them. This is gonna be our third and final passage that, we look at, that we're gonna look at today to try to connect this to, 
to what we just read. Uh, all throughout the history of the church, from the early church until today, people have noticed linkage points between what Jesus is talking about and these later passages in Hebrews. Okay, so turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Yeah, Hebrew, uh, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, and 1 John 5.16. Those are the three most famous. There are others that are, are definitely there. In fact, there's actually roughly somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 passages, that are, they, but some of them are just like little phrases here and there. These are like full-out developed thoughts. So we're going to look at, at one of them, which is, which is a longer one, but it's important for us to look at this. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm going to read verses 26 to 36, or sorry, to 39. Hebrews 10, 26 to 39. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Most people stop reading there, which is a huge mistake, so we need to keep reading. Verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Okay, very important passage. Now, a lot of people read verse 26, and they, they think, okay, they just read that in isolation. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's a terrifying concept, because I don't think a person among us would say that we have not sinned willfully after becoming a Christian, right? Like, I've never met anybody like that. I would never say that. And so you read this statement just in isolation, and all of a sudden, like, pangs of, of anxiety and questioning your salvation and all these things. Like, what? How in the world can I stand? And it's strong language here. Uh, fearful expectation of judgment in verse 27 uh, how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? I mean, it's just piling on all these phrases and senses, and yeah, it's just, I, I can understand why people can become very anxious when they read this passage. But as is often the case, it's not read in context. And in fact, the context, when you, when you read it in 32 and 39, is so important. And I think it's safe to say that basically everybody agrees on the context from the early church until today. The book is written to Jewish Christians, 
hence the name Hebrews, right? He spoke the Hebrew language, or Hebrew genetics, genealogy rather. And, um, and so what, it, what is it talking about? It's talking about a group of people who have been plunged into great suffering, right? Did you notice what it says in 32 and 33? Great struggle with sufferings. They've been made spectacles both by reproaches and tribulations. Uh, and they had, um, uh, they became companions of those. They, it says they accepted the plundering of their goods in verse 34, okay? See all those, those points? So the overwhelming consensus, modern and ancient, is that what is being talked about here is, is a group of people who are Jewish Christians, some of whom are going back to just regular Judaism, absent Jesus as their savior. And so hence, so much of Hebrews, when you go back and read it in this light, it, it draws on a lot of Old Testament key themes about, about Moses and Melchizedek and Abraham and is trying to portray Jesus as the fulfillment of that and, and basically leaving people with the sense of, of if you go back to the order of the Aaronic priesthood, you're missing out the fulfillment of what Jesus intended or what God intended in the Old Testament. Okay, so, so what is the sinning willfully here that is being described? Is it somebody who tells a lie or they, they commit some sexual sin? Okay, those are bad things. I'm not trying to sanction those things, but that's not what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is people who experienced the life of the Holy Spirit. They experienced the church. They experienced all the blessings. They saw the hand of God at work, and yet they're going to go back to Judaism, partly because of all this pressure of of testing and and suffering and persecution okay really really important to to read this in context and i could those afterwards if those i know many people here um, speak greek or know greek and koine greek i'd love to talk with those who do about some of the key phrases in this but very similar ideas i think portrayed in hebrews 6 as well okay so so we need to remember that there's a lot of of Anytime we, we, we read passages like this, we need to try to look at the context and connect it to the bigger picture. I think it's actually similar insofar as this is a group of people that is, is stubbornly disputing the indisputable. They have seen the work of God. They have, they have partaken in, as it says in Hebrews 6, these heavenly gifts. And they're saying, sorry, I'm going to go back. And they are turning away from something that is demonstrably true. Very, very important point here to emphasize that this sin here is not the, the casual one-off sin or many of, what, of the things that we speak about sin. And I say that again because so many of us can have a, an improperly weak conscience in, in regard to this. My fourth and final point in, in all of this is that Compared to the Old Testament, Jesus enlarges what is forgivable. Okay, I know that's a mouthful. I'll have to unpack this as well. Compared to the Old Testament, Jesus enlarges what is forgivable. This is very, very important that I want us to, to dwell on and really understand. Okay, before I, I explain this, I want us to think back to the Old Testament. And I'm, I'm here going to reference a, a Jewish commentator his name is Milgram, who has written 
if you ever want to see an, uh, an amazing commentary uh, from a Jewish perspective, he's written almost 3,000 pages of a three-volume commentary just on the book of Leviticus. Okay, think about that. Imagine trying to write, it's actually about 2,500 pages on the book of Leviticus, but he did that. And, and he, notice, he notices that there is these categories of sin where it says if you commit the sin, you'll be cut off, is, the, is what it says in English, from, from Israel. You'll be cut off from Israel. This is on volume one, page 458. And as it turns out, he tabulates how many different categories of sins that if you commit these, there's no forgiveness for these sins. You are cut off from the community. So this includes... I'll just run through some of these elements here. Eating leaven on the Passover, working on the Sabbath, eating blood, eating fat, uh, duplicating the sanctuary anointment oil. So if you even make a copy of the anointment oil, you're cut off. Blasphemy, uh, illicit worship, illicit sexual relations, eating a sacrifice in a state of impurity. I'm not going to read all these, but on and on he goes and he lists all these categories. And there's no, there's no forgiveness for these. You're, you are cut off. Uh, there are sins like adultery. You don't get to ask for forgiveness there. You're stoned. That's it. You're done. You, there's, no, there's no hope for you at this point. I hope you notice, you know, our, our, our minds are so often drawn to what is, hey, boys, don't do that, um, drawn to what is negative. And what we often don't notice in this is the first part of, now, this is going back to Matthew 12, we're, we're done with our, our scriptural survey here, but what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 31, he says, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Okay, now, how many of us locked in on that, on that part of the verse, right? We tended to lock in on the blasphemy of the spirit part and miss the first part, but here's Jesus, the savior of the world, who says, therefore I say to you, and he says this in reference to what he talked about before with the binding of the strong man and the kingdom coming. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. That's amazing. That's an amazing, amazing promise that's given here. Okay, so I gave you an example of, of what blaspheming in the spirit looks like. And I gave you the example of Pharaoh. But now what I want to do in my final point here is give you examples of what not blaspheming the spirit looks like. Okay, I'm going to give you a handful of these. Okay, in this very chapter, we're not going to read it, but in this very chapter, just a few verses later, we're going to see Jesus' family, his mother, his brothers, his sisters, accuse Jesus of being crazy, okay? Among Jesus' brothers is James, who will go on to be the leader of the Jerusalem church, at least as far as we know, the most preeminent leader of the Jerusalem church, who accuses Jesus of being a crazy man, okay? Apparently, that's not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, because he becomes this great church leader. 1 Corinthians 5 is a famous passage where a man commits a terrible sexual sin uh, involving something very perverse that Paul says the Gentiles don't even do. And guess what? As bad as this sin was, Paul says this person can be restored uh, and is, is restored in 2 Corinthians. Let's think about Peter, okay? Peter who sees all these miracles, right? He saw more miracles than the Pharisees did. Walked on water. I mean, the person who had the greatest access to Jesus in the history of, of humanity. 
What does Peter do? He goes out and denies Jesus three times after promising up and down that he's not going to do it. And he, he's restored and he becomes, as we know, one of the great apostles and church leaders. Let's think about Paul. Paul, who knew, who knew the Old Testament probably better than anybody on the planet in, in, when he was living, was an individual who was, was responsible for killing Christians, right? And knew full well the truth of what they were saying, understood it, got the claims, yeah, yeah, totally got it. And what happens to Paul? Did, did God say, you committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? No, He's, he himself is restored and becomes the famous apostle. I'll give you one final example. This one I think is, is an in, intriguing one. This is from Peter's sermon that he gives in Acts 3. So in Acts 3, this is after a healing uh, of a layman at, a, at the temple gate. And this is in Acts 3. You can just listen to this. I think it's an amazing sermon. But in Acts 3.14, But you deny the Holy One and the just, and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, and kill the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, this lame man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has been given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Verse 17, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Okay, so this is like not even two months after the crucifixion. People who were in Jerusalem, who saw Jesus, who heard him here, who heard him teach in the temple, many of them knew about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And yet, Peter is saying, you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers, the people who were like plotting and scheming, right? Like, it's pretty amazing. And so then he goes on to say in verse 26, to you first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Amazing. So even the very people who crucified Jesus, uh, we don't know who all was involved and all the schemes that were behind that, but Peter is right there offering them forgiveness for that and doesn't say, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're done. No, no uh, possibility of forgiveness here. As I conclude here, there is no doubt that this is a real phenomenon. I believe that I've met people who have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I'm very confident that in this room, no one has. Um, I'm very confident of that. I'm very confident that this can be a passage that is inappropriately applied and can, can weaken our conscience. Again, I don't want to minimize it. It is a very real phenomenon that can happen today, but I think we need to treat it exegetically and contextually as I've tried to lay out here in this in the sermon, and to think about the positive examples, to think about the people that were forgiven despite the horrific things that they did is so encouraging. I want us to just close by remembering a beautiful verse. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that the Son of Man has come to forgive all of our sins and that there is uh, no sin that he cannot forgive. We want to be mindful of the reality of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, of disputing the indisputable, of being so hard-hearted and callous that we turn away from following you. I trust that will not be the case for anyone in this room. I do pray that we would be appropriately 
rapid in our obedience to not let ourselves ever go to a point of, of hardness and being calloused of turning away from your son. But I, I do thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Father, who calls us, who beckons us, who draws us close to Jesus, who brings us time and time again the testimony of who he is. I thank you for all of God's people, for what we've experienced even today in our agape, in our worship, and the devotional we heard from Brother Seth. And may your words encourage us and help us to press in with the full confidence that, that you love us and are drawing us near. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.